Okay, so tonight we are looking at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 8 to 22. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Our great God and heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and we thank you that we have a place where we can come this night, draw away from other matters and enter into your word in the power of your spirit looking there to see what you would teach us, that we might be transformed to be like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, as we come to the verses that were just read in Peter's letter, it's important to have the context in mind. And the context was that the Christians to whom Peter was writing in northern Turkey were doing it tough. There was significant opposition to them as Christians and even outright persecution. And that colours this letter. The Christians in northern Turkey were doing it tough. So to today's passage, 1 Peter 3 and verse 8. I hope you've got something device where you can follow it on. And Peter begins by saying, Finally, all of you. In the passage we looked at last week, Peter addressed those who are in a relationship with the government in one way. Then he addressed 
effectively in talking about slaves or servants. He addressed our relationships as employees. And then he addressed the roles of husbands and wives. And now Peter says, finally, all of you. But but I want to go back to those Peter was addressing in last week's passage. Because I, as I reflected on last week, I noted that as we looked at that passage, there was another biblical principle which applied to matters in that passage which was not reflected in the passage itself. And that was the principle of safety. What do I mean? Well, in that passage, Peter urged his readers uh, to, for example to uh, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. So there is a respect for government that we need to have. But in the Bible, that actually has a limit. Let me give you an example. Think back to Jesus as a child. When Joseph discovered that King Herod was going to kill Jesus in Bethlehem, He didn't stay in Bethlehem. Joseph actually left the country. He left God's people and went to Egypt to find safety for Jesus. Joseph determined that it was unsafe to remain in Israel, so he left. And even when Herod died and Joseph looks back at Israel and discovers that Herod's son is ruling the area of Israel, which includes Bethlehem, he again makes a decision that Bethlehem is still unsafe. And so he goes to Nazareth. And you might say the rest is history. But likewise in the Old Testament, thinking of employee relationships, there's a point in the Old Testament when David, who will eventually become King David, when David was working for King Saul in the palace, doing all sorts of things for King Saul... And then King Saul started throwing spears at David. What did David do? Stay in his... No, David left. He fled. Indeed, David even went and worked from the Philistines to get away from King Saul, the Philistines, Israel's enemies. And David literally moved to Gaza in modern-day terms. That's where the Philistines live. The name even goes back that far. David literally moved to Gaza because Israel was not safe. David fled for safety. Now, interestingly, David wouldn't do anything against King Saul. He he regarded King Saul as God's anointed king, who everyone needed to respect. But he worked out it was not safe to be working for him, and he needed to flee and be away. And so it is in the Bible, there is a principle of, where possible, keeping safe and fleeing from unsafe positions. And in my view, that principle of safety then also applies to marriage. If a marriage has become, for one partner, an unsafe place, then that person has every right to flee that marriage. A person in an unsafe marriage is not expected to stay. I want to clarify that in terms of the teaching that's back there in 1 Peter chapter 3. Now... There's much more I could say about this, and if you've got any questions, do come and ask me afterwards, or criticisms or thoughts, do come and ask me. Back to 1 Peter 3, 
Because here Peter is continuing, though, his theme of what it means to live lives that matter in our society. And first of all, Peter says that we need to look in, look in, and I say look in, look in both at ourselves individually and as a church, look in, he says, to develop as a people who love one another. Verse 8 again. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. There are two pairs in that verse. As we look inward, we're to focus, Peter says, on being like-minded and humble. Like-minded, I'm concerned for your position. Humble, I'm, I'm prepared to put my own position back. You get the idea? Sympathetic and compassionate. Those are the other two words that go together. Words that speak of our concern for others in their time of need. And in the midst of those words in that verse, love one another. Love being centred on others. As we seek to be servants of Christ, as we seek to be like the Lord Jesus, then love should be the mark of the way we operate. Then in verse 9, Peter looks at what it's like when love is extraordinarily difficult. Verse 9. Peter says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Tough for these northern Turkey Christians. Tough for Christians today in all sorts of places around the world. Northern Nigeria, one example. Evil was being done to these people on a regular basis. And in the midst of that... Peter says that Christians are not to respond to evil with evil rather than blessing. Let's name this. This is very hard. When we are hurt, our natural response is revenge. Get back at them. Get even. Show you're not a pushover. Make sure they know they'll suffer if they do something to you. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. The love has got to be applied even when it's tough. It's hard. In fact, I think it's impossible, humanly impossible, but for one thing, once we've trusted in Christ and we're in Christ and we have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit actually longs, longs to help us not to pay evil for, not to pay evil, for evil. Let me give you an example. There was a a Dutch Christian lady in the Second World War by the name of Corrie ten Boom. I've mentioned her before. And as she helped Jews escape from the Nazis, eventually she was caught and put with her sister in a concentration camp, and eventually her sister died in the concentration camp. After the war, she met the guard responsible for her sister's death. And as she met him, she describes how she felt in the experience. She writes, It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights. The pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the centre of the floor. The shame of walking past this man naked. stripped people before they killed them. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. 
And Corey goes on to write of her struggle to forgive this man. To make it worse, this man had become a Christian. This man knew that he was completely forgiven in Christ, forgiven even for what happened in the concentration camp. But still, still Corey struggled. How, how could she forgive the man who effectively put her sister to death in such a horrific way? She struggled. She writes on, It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. Corrie writes that it was only by handing herself completely over to God and seeking his strength that eventually, 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 she finally actually was able to forgive this man. And forgiveness is a blessing. It's also a mark of love for one another. Peter says, when it's hard to love, that's still the expectation of us. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, it's possible. And then Peter goes on to quote from Psalm 34. What's helpful in these verses is the reminder... That when we're doing it tough, and when it feels like no one can see in the circumstances we're in, and no one knows how tough and difficult it is, well, this psalm reminds us that God sees and God knows. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There are lots of situations where it can seem like as Christians we're losing out, we're missing out, we're not getting noticed, we're not being effective, no one cares. And that, well, that may be true in this world. But Peter reminds us that God sees and God knows. God sees and God knows. So as we look in, Peter says, we are to be people marked by love, Marked by love, even where that is tough. Marked by love, even where that is tough. Which moves us to verse 13, where Peter changes direction from looking in to looking out. How are we as Christians to relate to the society around us? Verse 13, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good, he says. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Those last words are a quote from Isaiah 8. Do not fear. Helpful words. Because I think even us in soft Australia, our tendency is to fear what others will think if we say we're Christians. To fear what others, to fear that we will be rejected. To fear that we will be put down. Let me give you, tell you a story against myself. I've never forgotten this because I couldn't believe that I did it. Uh, when I was young, I worked here at the Steelworks. Big pictures. If you go to the Stag and Hunter for dinner tonight, you can see pictures of where I worked up on the wall. It's very nice of them to have put them up there. And uh, I remember going in one Monday morning to the Steelworks and sitting down with my boss and we got through the sort of Monday morning things and he turned to me and he said, Arthur, what did you do yesterday? Well, you'll be pleased to know I gave him a full detailed account of almost everything I had done the previous day. I can't remember what we'd done. Perhaps we'd gone to the beach, etc., etc. But very carefully, 
having exercised from it the fact that I had been to church. Why was I fearful? I, I think I thought that if I said that, he'd see me as weak and I'd be rejected. But Peter says, do not fear. Do not fear. Why? Verse 15. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. So what Peter is saying is, in a way, who is your audience? See, are you living as a Christian but fearful of those people out there? Or are you living as a Christian, as a Christian should, under the Lordship of Christ, with not a sort of unfounded fear, but a genuine reverence, godly fear, if you like, for the Lord Jesus, the one who has saved you, the one that loves you more than anyone else. That's what we're called on to do. Not to be fearful of the world, but to live in reverent fear of the Lord Jesus. And Peter goes on from this in verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And here, in a way, I think is the core of what it means to look out as Christians, to be engaged with the world around us. Because what Peter's talking about is the way in which, as he said, all of you at the beginning, finally all of you, all of you should be able to share Jesus with those around you. Now, in my experience of life, there are there are people who are particularly gifted in a number of different ways. And so I've been blessed over the years to, to have met people who are particularly gifted evangelists. They, they seem to be able to have conversations with anyone, anywhere, anytime about Jesus in the most remarkable way. I had one friend called Irene. She, every time a, she was a single lady. Every time a tradesman came to her house, somehow she'd get the conversation round to Jesus. How she got from electricity to Jesus, I never know, but she did. From plumbing to Jesus, she got, she got there. She even managed, on one occasion, that I was aware of. She's buying her shopping at Culls, but she still managed to tell the checkout girl about Jesus. She was incredibly gifted evangelist by God. And, and, and in our church, we need to look for people whom God has gifted that way and encourage them to, be, to use their gifts. But let me tell you, um, uh, I think if I tried to do that with a checkout girl, I'd probably be called over by the manager for kind of mishandling the situation in some way. But these words here are for all of you, as Peter writes, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, this verse then assumes that as Christians, we have a hope. And do we not have a hope? In, in a sense, when we shared in the Lord's Supper a few minutes ago, that was a reminder of our hope, that our hope is in what Jesus has done for us, that we are not only seated around a table here in this building here remembering Jesus' death, but we're looking forward to a day when because of what Jesus has done for us, we will be in a heavenly banquet beyond anything you can imagine. We should be people of hope beyond all people. And that should actually change the way we speak and operate. Remember a few years ago watching the swimming trials for Olympic Games. There must be another swimming trials coming up shortly for those who want to go to Paris. And I noticed that as soon as the swimmers got out of the pool and looked at their times and their places, they split into two groups. 
And you could see it in their body and the way they then spoke to commentators. Those who had failed to qualify immediately had no hope. Those who had qualified, they had hope. You could see the excitement in their eyes. They knew they were going this year, it will be to Paris. They knew that they'd made it. Friends, we're fundamentally a people of hope. And it's not that we've achieved anything, but that Christ has achieved it for us and given us a hope of glory. And that's a wonderful thing. And that hope ought to show in our lives, in the way we conduct ourselves, and in everything we do. And friends, I think in Aussie society as Christians, we're not very good at that. Take my uh, steelworks experience, that wouldn't have helped, so to speak. But I had another example of this. A Christian friend of mine somehow once got caught up in a meeting which was almost entirely of atheists. And these people were discussing the Christians they had met. And they began to have a discussion about what the Christians they'd met were like. And these people said, eventually they came to these definitions. The Christians they met were people who looked sad, wore glasses, dressed in daggy clothes, and always looked at their feet. I worry it's a description of me at times. I try not to look at my feet. But looked sad, wore glasses, dressed in daggy clothes, and always looked at their feet. In other words, their experience of Christians had been of people of no hope. Friends, we've got to change that. As we look out, out into the world around us, as we relate to those who are not Christians, then the hope we have in Christ ought to be something which they see. And then, says Peter, there's something else. We need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. So one of the things we need to learn as Christians, this is not saying you'll be able to speak about Jesus to the girl who sells you your groceries, but all of us need to work out what we would say if someone asks us for the hope we have. And actually, that's one thing we're going to be doing at the weekend away. As we think about preparing ourselves for our mission month in March, our Meet Jesus Mission Month in March, we've run out of M's, um, uh, we're going to be spending, t- one of the things we're going to be doing on the weekend away is spending time thinking about how we could do a better answer for the hope we have in Christ. But especially note the end of verse 15 about how we're to do that where Peter writes, but do this with gentleness and respect. When we're sharing the hope we have in Jesus, we are actually sharing something that is incredibly precious. Incredibly precious. And what do you do with things which are incredibly precious? You make sure they're, if you like, encased or brought in something also that will not damage them. That's what Peter says to us. As we share the hope that's in us, we are to do it with gentleness and respect. So in a sense, the hope which has gentleness and respect built into it is surrounded by the gentleness and respect that you would expect to come with that. So it's all consistent one with another. And the next verses note that even with gentleness and respect, we may still be rejected, but God sees and God knows. So, having looked in, people of love, 
looked out, people who share their hope, Peter now looks up. What is it that we as the people of love who share our hope looked up, look up to? And Peter is going to say in the last verses of this chapter, we look up to what Christ has done, what Christ has achieved and where Christ is now. What Christ has done, what Christ has achieved and where Christ is now. Firstly then, as we look up, what has Christ done? Chapter 3, verse 18, these are some of the most, this is some of the most wonderful verse in the, in the whole Bible, where, where Peter reminds us of the heart of the Christian faith. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Jesus came into the world as the Son of God. In this world he suffered even unto death. He was completely righteous. The Bible says that's not what we've been. But yet his righteousness was for us and he suffered, in a sense, in our place to bring us to God. The end of the verse, end of verse 18, he was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. God did not leave Jesus dead but raised him from death. So look up. Look up, Peter's saying to these people in northern Turkey as they suffer, look up, because the Lord Jesus has died and risen for you. But secondly, though, what's Jesus' death and resurrection achieved? Well, it has two effects, really. In our world, it brings both judgment and salvation. Firstly, judgment. If you're following, it's worth reading this verse. Chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 19. After being made alive, he, that's Jesus, went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirit, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, friends, as we move through the Bible, most of the Bible is very clear. Just take that particular previous verse. Christ suffered once for sins to bring us to God. That's pretty clear. And that verse is repeated over and over again in the Bible. So it's, it's, it's not just clear. It's repeated over and over again. But, but, friends, this is God's word inspired by God's Holy Spirit for all time and all places since Jesus. And as I come to read it, I am a finite and very limited and sinful person reading God's word. I am not God. And, and so there will be things in the word of God that I cannot be certain of and cannot fully understand. And actually, if you think about it logically, that's what you would expect. That in the end, only God will fully understand God's word. He's made it so clear for us. But there are things there which for his purposes and his time, which we may not understand, are difficult. And 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20 is one of those. I'm quite pleased, as I say, it's difficult because I'm in good company with people like Martin Luther who said this is very difficult. What you can know about every verse in the Bible is it will not contradict other passages in the Bible. So if, if the clear verses say A, A B, C then you're going to know that ABC is going to apply in every situation. And even if you get to a verse that you cannot understand, then the other verses are still going to be true that are repeated and consistent and clear through the Bible. And so it cannot mean the opposite of those. So I'll give you an example on this. Some people think that this verse, where you see uh, verse 19, after 
being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Some people think that this verse means that after Jesus died, he went down to hell and said to people, look, I'll give you a second chance. You've got a second chance now. You can now repent of your sins and I'll send you to heaven. That's what some people write. I'll see why I know that's wrong. Not because I can fully understand this verse, but I know this is wrong because the rest of the Bible says that's wrong. And if, if that interpretation, which some people believe, is, happens to be true, then actually the whole Bible falls over because the whole Bible is just a pack of contradictions that we might as well throw in the bin. So that cannot possibly be the interpretation because it makes a mess of the rest. So what is the, this verse on about? Well, what is clear is that it's an announcement of judgment by Jesus. That much is clear. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to imprisoned spirits. An announcement of judgment. As I've wrestled with it, I've come up with um, two possibilities. I don't normally do this in a sermon. I'm going to give you them both. Both of which I think are consistent with the passage, but I cannot work out which is right. My scumbag group of team who work with me, they, they reckon I'm, I'm a weakling at this point, that I should have nailed myself to one mask. But I've decided to give you both, uh, both um, uh, versions. And the first, here's, here's, here's a possible interpretation, one of two that I think is possible. The first is that this verse is telling us that after Jesus was raised from the dead... And he's with the Father in all glory. Then he preaches judgment on some superhuman spirits from the time of Noah. Remember Noah? Guy who built the ark. Now, we're not told here who or what these superhuman spirits were. But I do know that one possibility for this verse is that the, the resurrected Jesus announces to superhuman forces that they are evil forces, that they are defeated at the cross. That's how powerful Jesus' death was. All superhuman spirits have been judged. And you can imagine if you're living in northern Turkey and it's a much more spiritual and evil and even demonic place than, than we live in and it might feel like the evil forces have got control to know that Jesus has announced judgment to them would be encouraging there's another possibility and I only just learned of this one in the, as I've researched this and that is that what this passage is saying is as Noah built his ark as in the midst of of what the Bible describes as an extraordinarily evil generation, Noah is building a boat, perhaps in the midst of drought, who knows. And I presume the extraordinary evil generation around Noah probably didn't take kindly to this boat and didn't take kindly to Noah. But as Noah shared with those of his generation the hope that was in his heart that God would actually bring salvation through a boat in the flood. As Noah did that, then actually what Peter is saying here is the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is eternal before all time and for all time, the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ was actually announcing judgment to the people of Noah's time through Noah. 
If this is right, then Peter's point is that as each of us shares the hope that's in our hearts, as we share with others what Jesus has done for us, then those who hear us, those who hear just us, if they reject what we are saying, if we are those, back verse 14, who suffer for what is right, if that is what's happened as we share what Jesus has done for us, then in a sense the spirit of Jesus, like it was speaking through Noah to his generation, is speaking through us to our generation. And where they reject the gospel, in a sense we are speaking judgment upon them for the rejection of Jesus To me, both of those interpretations of the passage make sense, but I cannot work out which to go with. I asked Morning Church if they could tell me which one was right, so I'd only give you one. They didn't. <laughs> so that was judgment. But the passage reminds us, the, passage, the story of Noah reminds us that actually in the act of judgment through the flood, eight persons were saved through a boat. And Peter says the fact that Noah was saved through water is a bit like the picture of the fact that he says we are saved through baptism. Now, when you read that at first, you might think, hang on, Arthur, isn't that a bit contradictory to other parts of Scripture? Not at all, actually. Firstly, we need to remember that baptism in the first century was usually what you did when you became a Christian. So that if there'd been an evangelistic event of some kind in the first century and someone had asked you to become a Christian and you'd wanted to become a Christian, uh, if you'd done Christianity Explored at the, in the first century, at the end of Christianity Explored, you would have been baptised. That's in, uh, where we think of praying the prayer. They thought baptism. And that's why Peter puts it here. We, that's what he means by we're saved through baptism. It's like saying someone's saved when they've prayed the prayer to commit themselves to Christ. And just in case we're in doubt about that, Peter goes on. Verse 21, very important verse. He says, and this water symbolized baptism that now saves you also. And then he clarifies, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. So Peter says, the baptism that saves us is not the washing off of physical dirt. It's not as if the more showers I have, I'm, the closer I am to God. Not at all. No, he says, the critical part of Christian baptism is the pledge made to God from a good conscience. That is, it is a sincere commitment to God which is required. So whatever age you bring people to be baptised, whatever age, if those same people do not make a commitment to God, then the baptism is of no value. And the commitment of God itself... It, itself has to be based, says Peter in the next verse, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In a sense, if God had not raised Jesus from the dead, then we have people without hope. If Jesus stayed in the tomb, no hope for us. So what is the baptism which saves us? Peter says it's a sincere commitment to God based on our knowledge and our hope that Jesus has risen from the dead and we've been baptised into him and united with him and so we will one day also be raised. Now, friends, just to clarify, you don't need to know when you pledged yourself to God. Actually, in my life, I have no idea when I did. What's important is that you know that you are pledged to God and that that pledge is through the resurrection of Jesus. That is the baptism which saves us. 
See, and it's also when all around are knocking us for being Christian. Peter, in a sense, is going back to we're pledged to Jesus. We are his, baptised into his death and resurrection. So the two achievements of Christ's death and resurrection are judgment and salvation. Judgment for those who will not accept the death, death and resurrection of Christ and salvation for those who pledge themselves on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection. And then finally, Jesus speaks, sorry, Peter speaks of where Jesus is now. Verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Jesus has entered heaven, is at God's right hand and God has made all angels and all powers and all authorities his subject. Can you imagine for those Christians in northern Turkey... When it looked at times like their local governor, like the local authorities, like the local Jews and the local pagans had all authority, all power. No, no, no. Remember the Lord Jesus, who is Christ the Lord. He's the one who really has everything in submission to him. Friends, we live in times of, I think, real uncertainty. I read this week of one major commentator saying we've moved from a post-war world to a pre-war world. I don't know about you, but I find that very scary. There's a real possibility of major conflict in our world. And obviously there are places in the world where there are major conflict now. And if we were in them, we wouldn't be talking about a possibility because it's happening. And that is continually the case. I think it's true that the 20th century had more war than any century before it. It's an uncertain world and all sorts of things can happen. We've, if you're my age, we've had it pretty good in Australia in a most remarkable way, but that may not stay the same. And even within our country, there are signs of real division, of, of a possibility of total breakdown of some aspects of life. Friends, the future is very uncertain. There are no guarantees. And that's why these words in this passage are so beautiful. Because what Peter under the Holy Spirit is reminding us is, whatever happens, wherever we go, no matter the outcomes, in every circumstances, we have a place to stand firm in Christ. And as we stand firm, Peter says, look in. How are we living out the love of Jesus? Look out. How are we sharing the hope of Jesus and look up, remembering that Jesus has died and risen for us. He's brought both judgment and our salvation and he's already seated in heaven with everything beneath his feet. Let me pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you and praise you for your word and we thank you and praise you for this word and we pray that by your spirit we would indeed look in in love, look out and share the hope we have in us and look up to Jesus and all he has done for us in his name. Amen.